Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Livs. Today we're talking about medicine and medical practitioners in Star Trek. Which turned out to be a really popular topic when you posted about it on Instagram. We had a lot of discussion. Yes, I'm excited that that people were interested and, and wanted to pick their favourite doctors. <laughs> you know, medicine is very much on people's mind and it plays a very big part in Star Trek. Yeah, I've yeah. seen a lot of, you know, which Starfleet doctor would you want to deal with the pandemic Mm-hmm. or who's most likely to come up with the vaccine and stuff like that. Uh, I'm going to say all of them because <laughs> we want to throw as much brain power as we can at, at this problem. It's certainly, I mean, I think that's why I was interested in doing it. Was yeah. It's, you, can't, you can't avoid it, so you might as well look at it from an interesting Star Trek perspective. Yeah, and I had proposed that we do this episode as a deep dive into the character of Christine Chapel, which I still think we should do one day, but Women at Warp did it did the same thing very recently. So I can I can have my nursing in Star Trek rant in this episode instead. That's right. Mm. You've set out a very nice list of doctors, the doctors from each series. Uh, McCoy, Bor- Boyce, and Mabenga, Crusher, Pulaski, Salah, Bashir, the EMH, Fox, Colber, Pollard, the the Rios EMH, EMH, (laughs) and and Agnes Girati. And uh, it's sort of interesting how in modern modern 21st century Trek, the role of the Doctor seems to have declined. Yes. In Discovery, we still don't know who the Chief Medical Officer is on that ship. I thought it like, was Tracy Pollard. I thought so too, but then all other people came and said that she wasn't the, the CMO. She was just another doctor. Oh. So I don't really know. But even if, like, if she is, she's not a regular. No. Culber wasn't even a regular in the first season. And none of his arcs are really about him as Medicine a doctor. at all, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Which is not a criticism, but it would be cool to have more of his profession in the third season and more yeah. of Dr. Pollard and and the CMO if that's a different character. It makes sense for both Deep Space Nine and Voyager for there to be only one doctor. Does it make sense for Deep Space Nine? Well, okay, it makes sense for there to be only one Starfleet doctor in yes. Deep Space Nine because it's not a Starfleet, it's like a Starfleet outpost on another station, like a Bajoran station. You know, it's yeah. Not, it's like it's not a Starfleet thing. And Voyager, they they all got they all died, so yeah. like that those make sense. And Enterprise, like they didn't even have a doctor. Fox isn't even really a part of Starfleet. He's like, <laughs> he's, you know, he randomly joined the crew. It's very strange. Is he even qualified to treat humans? <laughs> is he even a doctor? <laughs> as far as I can tell, he could have been easily been like a PhD in biochemistry or something who mm. got on board and was like i want to do research on you guys yeah, yeah. And, this is totes ethical by the way like, okay sure yeah <laughs> so here have our sick bay <laughs> i so have it, a theory 
about the decline of the Doctor as a presence in Star Trek because this is almost the only franchise where we can trace this development down the decades. And so you start with McCoy and Crusher and these are sort of the eras where Americans had a family doctor and had better access to healthcare. And so as your healthcare system evolved and changed and became more difficult to access, mm-hmm. the doctor the doctors reduce in numbers on the ship and become less accessible. Medicine is less accessible to the crew except right. through emergency things like holograms. Yeah, and you have to... So the EMHs are yeah. the only doctors we have in the most future Star Treks, right? Right. So it, it's like they've actually been replaced by, <laughs> by holographic doctors. And this is right. where I bring up that in Star Wars, which is not... <laughs> it's futuristic, but also not futuristic, but I've always found it really interesting and odd that there are no doctors in Star Wars. They are all droids. Every yeah. medic is a droid. It's like they just stopped having human contact for practitioners. Wasn't there a doctor played by Harriet Walter in The Force Awakens who's sort of flirting with Chi? Yes, but that I think that's a cut scene. I don't think that scene's actually in the movie. Or if it is, it's only like a couple lines. And the it's, whole scene it's very in brief. The, in the delete. Yeah. Like there is a, a larger scene... But it, that's, that's the resistance, and they mm. and certainly by once you get to like the Last Jedi, they have no resources. They have, nothing. They have literally yeah. nothing. So, so in the Force Awakens, it's like they they had. So she's like an old school, actual human doctor that they you know convinced to join mm. their ragtag group. That's what I get out of it. It's just it's just interesting. I'm not saying that. It's just it's like it's this weird. In the future, we won't have doctors. We will just have holograms or droids. And it's sort of like now that we're in this pandemic where you can't go see your doctor unless it's an emergency and you just see them over the internet, like I can see how Teladoc is going to become droids and and holograms. Like, I can see that. It makes sense. It, not... Not in a good way. (laughs) I think that we need to keep the human Mm. parts of doctoring. But, like, I get it. I get why science fiction is sort of playing with that reality. And it's even a thing in The Expanse where there's no doctor on the Rocinante. There's a computer system which can do surgery and dispense medicine. And then on bases and so forth. Web MD is taking over. Yeah, yeah. And so human doctors are a supplement. Anyway, that's my grand theory about the decline of the role of the doctor in Star Trek. And you also see kind of the way our conception of the doctor changes from the doctor as bartender with Boyce and the friendly neighbourhood gruff old man of McCoy to the much more nurturing figure of Crusher and then sort of the male ego with Bashir and the EMH and then Phlox I I love Phlox he's actually one of my favorite characters on Enterprise but I have so much trouble fitting him into the role of doctor and I think it's like you said I don't know that he is a doctor I don't think he's a doctor I think he is Mm. a he has a PhD and Mm. he's a research scientist I really yeah. see Flux as more of a research scientist than an actual medical practitioner, <laughs> which is interesting. And I agree that he's like a great character, but it's, it's I wouldn't want him treating me. 
Well, I think this is part of the discussion on Twitter that a lot of these characters are wonderful, wonderful characters, but would you want them to be treating you at all? And uh, yeah, uh, I have a list of Star Trek doctors who I would want as my doctor. And in order it goes Crusher, Pulaski, Kolber, McCoy, Bashir, the holographic doctor, Phlox. And I didn't. I, I completely forgot about the EMH on La Serena and Agnes because Agnes doesn't even practice medicine. She has a medical degree, but she doesn't practice. I'm just sort of. It's like she is the doctor on that on that show. She doesn't actually like do doctoring, but she has a 100% fatality rate with her patients. <laughs> I actually. So I my notes for you know I, I wrote out the the list for us and then I like put in a little bit for each each person and my mm. my notes for Gerardi is just Gerardi dash lol <laughs> that's it. it it sort of annoys me that she has a medical degree because I think Alison Pill is too young to play a character with two doctorates but well it could be an MD PhD where you get them at the same time no, because she already has her PhD, when, her her, doc, her medical degree when she hooks up with uh, what's his face oh, as his grad student. Well then, I agree yeah. with you. It's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also like in the future, apparently everyone gets their you know college degrees when they're twelve or whatever, and then they join. So it's whatever. It's fine. Yeah, I'm going to assume, I'm going to headcanon that she finished high school at 16, went straight to the academy and only, and did the whole medical thing and then belatedly realised she did not want to be in space. And I still wonder why they let her in, but uh, I guess it's like the sorting hat and people's psychology changes as they grow up. Who knows? Who even Imagine Gerardi taking her, like, no-win scenario test to get into the academy. It's like, it would be a mess. I thought that one was to graduate. Well, no, because in, Wesley takes that, Oh yeah, the, the psychological test. he has test. to, like, prove that he can make a decision and, and choose someone who has to die. Which is, like, apparently that is the number one way to to test someone because that happens to it happens to troy it happens to mm. wesley it happens to everybody in the actual no one scenario kobayashi maru test it's like whatever <laughs> i feel like that particular test was tailored for wesley like it's different for everyone and with the way wesley's father yes. died that's what he needed that's what it said but it's just it's just interesting to me that that's like the Star Trek writers think that that's the biggest test or something. I kind of think the Federation as a culture values life so highly that it really must be very difficult for the average citizen if they are faced with a scenario where they effectively have to triage. And so, yeah, I can see that being a real point of division between people who are suitable for Starfleet and everyone else. Like, I don't think I could do it. I don't know. I would, I would have to take the test. I can't imagine yeah. it. So it could, because my, my existence is such that I would never <laughs> be in that position. Yeah, I don't even like killing like my squad in video games. I feel bad about it. And, and they're pixels, and not very well animated pixels at the best of times. Aww. So, do you have a favourite Doctor? <sighs> it's hard. It's hard because 
I think I've told this story where I, I told uh, Alexander Siddig that I loved all the doctors, and so that's why he was going to be my favorite mm, Yes, you have. And so, like, I have this, in my head, I have this idea that I love the doctors most, but mm. then when I actually, like, write down my favorite characters, they don't make it onto the list, so it's like this weird... <laughs> Like, medical, Starfleet medical track is my favorite of all. Like, I write, I like them more than command, and I like them more than engineering, and mm -hmm. ops, or whatever that one is. But the individual characters, like, I, lo I love them all, but I don't know. It's weird. So, I guess Dr. Crusher is, like, my my nostalgic, like, heart's favorite. Yes. Um, because I loved her so much when I was a kid watching The Next Generation. I just was so drawn to her as a character. Yeah. She was the first character in The Next Generation that I really connected with. Same. So yes. I would say that, that that's like Dr. Crusher is going to be my favorite. I have a lot of affection for Dr. Bashir mm -hmm. because I... I love I have I love trash boys. <laughs> like I just do. I have this problem. No, so, no. So and I really like he reminds me a lot of Tom Paris in that mm. he starts out as a really terrible person who you like can't root for because he's horrible and creepy towards all women and treats people in a very elitist you're my property weird way like he's entitled or something but he becomes like he grows into someone mm. who decides not to be that both, yeah. both tom paris and dr bashir do this in in this sort of like interesting arc where i don't know i i wrote here uh he, he's creepy about women and becomes a much better character when they stop doing that. It's almost like you shouldn't prioritize having a ladies' man in your cast. I it's like couldn't all agree of them. More. They try to they try to do this with these these characters, and it, it's awful and doesn't work. Like even like no one likes it. Like not no. just not just me not just women but like no one likes it because they stop doing it and then the characters become better yeah you know? yeah I've... like Riker Paris yes. Bashir all go through this so it's like maybe don't have that be important to your cast <laughs> yeah I've been listening to the podcast Delta Flyers with Garrett Wong and Robert Duncan McNeil it's rather good uh, everyone should give it a go if they like Voyager but he is saying in the first couple of episodes he wishes that he hadn't played Paris as such such an aggressive sleaze because it's unpleasant to watch and it's so far removed from what the character eventually becomes which is exactly. like suburban space dad Exactly. And I see Bashir yeah. in that same way. Like, he doesn't become the same type of character, but he does no. start out as one, like, person that I don't really want to win. But in the end, I really love him. Yeah, uh, yeah. And even though he, he never quite grows out of Trash Boy, but, he, <laughs> but he's not like an archer. He's not a complete Trash Boy. <laughs> I think the thing is that he learns 
better. He stops being a creep around women. He stops being incredibly colonialist about Bajor and the frontier. And he loses his ego. Like, The Quickening is a really great episode because initially he fails and a lot of people die. And he keeps going and he leaves Deep Space Nine for months to, or, you know, a couple of months at least to, to live with these people in relative poverty and cure their disease. And in the end, all he can do is ensure that it's not passed on to the next generation. And the work of curing it for this living, dying generation has to go to other people. Like, that's an outstanding episode. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of Bashir as Doctor, like, if I think of him in that role, I think Ego. And that's sort of a story about breaking his ego. Yes. And and he comes out better for it. Yeah, yeah. Like, he was already a good character, but after that, I would trust him as a good doctor. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, like, a Dr. House type who is absolutely brilliant at medicine, but would you actually want to be treated by him? Right, exactly. You don't. Mm. I'm in the middle of a house rewatch right now. and Oh my god. Don't. You absolutely do not. You also don't want to spend any time with him. (laughs) (laughs) My confession is that I wrote a fair, like not a lot, but a a little bit of house fic back in the day. It was a whole thing. I have house fic. (laughs) We can, we can compare notes. (laughs) Mine's all about Cameron, I'll be honest. I really detested Cameron as a character. (gasps) I love her. She's one of my favorite fictional characters. Well, the thing is, I think if I went back now, 10, 15 years Oh my god, how long has it been? I think if I went back now, I would really appreciate her more. But back then I found her annoying and I wanted more cuddy. And I now I'm much older and wiser and we can have both. <laughs> uh, but House yeah. is the origin of my great love for Lisa Edelstein. So, okay, that's fair. That's yeah. Fair. Anyway, back on topic. So, uh, yeah. So Crusher, Bashir, and I will say that I really like... Culber, but I have yes. yet to see him as a doctor at all, so I, just, I don't even like count him as favorite doctor because it's like I like his character, mm-hmm. <laughs> such as it is. I like the character that I think he is. I'll, I'll say that. I feel like I would enjoy being treated by him because, like, like the women, he has a very gentle manner and he doesn't seem to let his ego get in the way of much. And I think those are good traits to have in a personal physician. Not, so, yeah, I, I would be open to being treated by Hugh. I think he's gentle. Mm. I think that's uh, I like. Good. I think I like my male doctors to be gentle and my female doctors to be spiky. Because I watched The Child, the episode of TNG that introduces Pulaski the other mm-hmm. day. And I'm like, A, this is truly terrible television. <laughs> B... I kind of feel like, aside from all the reasons that Pulaski doesn't work, like her relationship with Data is off-putting and all of that, I think she was just too outspoken and too ahead of her time as a character. Like, I look at Pulaski and I see a woman who can tell a bunch of men to cut the manlier-than-thou bullshit, Mm -hmm. and Star Trek wasn't ready for that. Mm -mm. Star Trek was not ready for that. And it's also, she was, like, even with the stuff with Data, I think they were trying, like, she's has a lot in common with McCoy. And McCoy yeah. is beloved. And Pulaski oh, absolutely. is not. She's mm. sort of having a, a maybe a renaissance now. I see more Pulaski fans than I had. Yes. But 
she's still she's never going to be on McCoy level of of beloved and but they have a lot in common she was an explicit attempt to bring in an older female McCoy type to the show and to bring a bit more conflict without breaking Roddenberry's rules and I just the problem is that she goes after data and like to me watching the child yeah yeah data can't fight back the way Spock does and so like to me, she meets Data, and it's like me if Siri started expressing preferences. I'd be like, that's hilarious. Who programmed that? Like when Siri <laughs> makes Skynet jokes. But the audience has known Data for a season and knows that Data is a person. So they just cannot see it from her perspective. And so she comes in like this complete bully. Right. And she does get over it to her credit, but i think it was a bad note to start off on yeah, and a lot a of people to start off yeah on. it's like watching an adult bully a child and also that that picard really disrespects her a lot in, that, in yeah. that episode he's just like i don't really i'm i'm so annoyed that you're a part of my crew now that i'm just mm. going to treat you terribly and it's just like wow he's kind of the audience stand-in for right. the beverly fans going wait what <laughs> so yeah, I, I Pulaski is just never going to be my favorite because I loved Crusher so much, and it's all wrapped up in my mother and my mm. mother's death, which all happened at the same time. <laughs> so it's like, no, no, <laughs> I, was, I understand. I, I cannot, but I understand why people like her, and I think that she is or could have been. A good character. Mm. I really wish Diana Mulder had been able to stick around as a recurring character at some point or, you know, come in on her own ship on once a season or something because I do think Pulaski could have been a character as popular and interesting as Ensign Rowe. And I think the series would have really benefited from having that sort of strong, no-bullshit female force. Mm-hmm. But my heart belongs to Beverly. Right, exactly. And Salah, season two is, of Next Gen is like the season of missed opportunities with female doctors because Salah only appears in one episode and she's still being name-checked as late as First Contact. Yeah. Or Susie Plaxon. She's very memorable. Mm. And she also brought like Susie Plaxon in. So, yes. So just the fact that she was put like because she is such a presence throughout Star Trek now, it's like she elevates Solar because it was yeah. she, was, she played her. Um, but I do think that like just the idea of a Vulcan Doctor mm. is fun and interesting, and I want more of that. It's also that she was she only appeared in one truly terrible episode, but she had so much presence. <laughs> exactly. And I think to be successful as an actor playing a Vulcan, you need to have a lot going on behind your eyes. And she did that. She was brilliant. And I love Robin Curtis, but I think Salah was like Kirstie Alley level good. Mm. And so it's a real shame that we never see her again. Do you think, like, in terms of really obscure characters, we can bring that back for for Picard? We could bring back Salah? Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. (laughs) They knew they do need a doctor, like we said. They do. They need a doctor. I think that with all of these Romulans running around, we need a Vulcan for comedy alone. <laughs> so good. 
But I also I also want Susie Plaxon to play Laurel's mother in Strange New Worlds. Because one, she's we know she can do a Klingon, we know she can handle makeup, and she is actually taller than Mary Chifo. Amazing. Yeah. So good. So good. Okay, let's make that happen. Make it happen. Mm. Mm. Because we've established that CBS is paying so much attention to our ideas. Obviously. They listen to us all the time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So do you think it would be weird to be treated by an emergency medical hologram that looks exactly like you? Uh, yes. Yes, it would. (laughs) However, this, this is... Okay, so it's been established that you don't have to have them all look like you. That no. you can buy this program and you can choose whatever you want them all to look like. Mm. And uh, and he chose to to keep it himself, <laughs> which is a whole layer of interesting on Mr. Rios. <laughs> but I would hate to be treated or joined in it. Like, I can't Im- I Okay, that's not true. I think mm. that... For the navigation, and like if, if I wanted to have a bridge crew, I could imagine a bridge crew just me, and that would be kind of cool. <laughs> cool. I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. As, as I was saying, I was like, wait, no, actually, I would like that. But for <laughs> doctoring, it's like I want to trust that they are going to be able to figure it out and take care of me and stuff. And I don't, because I am, I, I have you know some medical training i i am certified in cpr and first aid <laughs> like i i have enough uh healthcare training to work with uh developmentally disabled populations in their home mm-hmm so I'm a, wait, I forget what I'm called. It's, oh, I'm a nurse delegate. I'm a nurse delegate. Oh, nice. That doesn't mean I have any nursing. <laughs> and it certainly doesn't mean I have any doctor, like medical training, actual, you know, take care of a person training. That's, yeah. that's 12 years. <laughs> so, so I wouldn't want the person to look like me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want my doctor to look like me, even if it was a computer. Like, I would want it to look like Dr. House. You know, someone right. that trust to take care of me. Yeah, I was thinking, because I, I sprained my wrist on Sunday, and on Thursday I finally went, hey, this really hurts. Maybe I should see someone about it. So I had to go to a, an actual doctor's surgery. Uh, and it occurred to me as I was walking in that, I kind of have an idea of what's wrong and I really just want to have someone with training and authority to say, yes, this is wrong, this, and you are doing the right thing. And that's what I want from a doctor and I don't want the doctor to look like me because then I won't trust them. Exactly. Exactly. So that's Mm. just crazy, Mr. Rios. Yes, but I think also as a character note, it kind of suggests that he trusts himself only more himself. than only himself and yeah, I absolutely yeah i absolutely believe that he only trusts himself he's a gryffindor it's very very much his trait i get it yes no uh, i am not a gryffindor so <laughs> <laughs> yes therefore i am a very sensible hufflepuff and i believe in <laughs> trusting people with proper training 
So after the list of doctors, we have a list of nurses, and it's a lot shorter. It's <laughs> Chapel, Ogawa, Kess, Paris. <laughs> okay, so can we start with Paris? Because I just, I had to include him because I find it hilarious that he is the closest thing that Voyager has to a nurse. When and we never see him going through uh, yeah, any training like to improve his skills. Where he, where he even does anything in sickbay. Mm. Mm. But the the conceit, if I recall correctly, is that he got a B plus in biochemistry at the academy, and therefore he can be the nurse. Yeah. <laughs> that is terrible on every level. So that this is-, is my whole nursing <laughs> rant, that nursing is not treated as a profession that requires training and qualifications. Like, Kess is being trained to be a doctor, Chapel was studying to be a doctor and then left to become a nurse and run off after her fiancé. And Ogawa's professional arc is actually where Beverly goes, oh yeah, you're doing great, let's talk about boys. (laughs) And I think one thing that the whole COVID thing has really brought home is how much we need nurses. Like, it's all very well that all your doctors are holograms or droids or whatever, but who is changing the bedpans and giving the sponge baths and, you know, even if your bio bed puts out the vital signs on a little screen, who is there to read and understand them? And I guess Star Trek takes this thing of, oh, the doctors will do it, but we know that that's not how real life works. And it really troubles me that we see so few nurses and they're so relatively disregarded. And it's a joke that Paris is a man and a ladies' man and a nurse. And Kess and Chapel are failed doctors or doctors-to-be. And nursing gets a lot of disrespect. It's, it's terrible. It's I terrible. would like to see better depictions of nurses in Star Trek. I, so I love medical dramas. I love to yes. watch them. And my favorite is ER. And so this comes up mm. in ER because, so my favorite character in ER is Carol Hathaway, Juliana Margulies. Yes. And she is a nurse and she is the heart of the, the you know, the beginning of that series. Mm. And it's very clear that as much as the doctors work hard and care about their patients and take care of them, it's the nurses who who take who really take care of their patients. It's like they're the yeah. ones, they're the face of the the ER. You know, they're the people who you're going to see over and over again the three hours that you're there and they're, you know, doing all of the like the doctor says, do this thing and then the nurse does it. Yes. And so Carol has this arc where she decides that she wants to be a doctor because she never thought she could. Like, it wasn't, she wasn't good enough to be a doctor, so she became a nurse. And now she realizes that she is good enough to be a doctor, and so she takes the MCATs and she's going to become a doctor. And then after passing and, you know, and Carrie starts treating her like a med student and starts like respecting her in a way that she had never respected her as a <laughs> chief nurse, even though she was like the most senior nurse and she was there before Carrie even began. And she realizes that she wants to have that patient interaction. She wants to be the face of the ER. She wants to be the heart of everything. She wants to actually take care of people and not be a doctor. And so she decides to say, a, stay a nurse 
And then yeah. she gives up her career to go join Doug in Seattle. And obviously she doesn't give up her career. She just moves it to Seattle. But that's like what she's remembered for is that she she went after her boyfriend. <laughs> and then Abby Lockhart, who is introduced in her last in Carol's last season, has the same progression. Like she's Oh my god. A nurse who wanted to be a doctor, but but gave it up and decided to become a nurse but she really wants to be a doctor and she has this whole thing where she's like i know nursing is great and she has a whole speech about it wow it's really wonderful and important and and it's it's valid and just as important as as being a doctor but then she becomes a doctor and like is a doctor for the rest of the series and that's what she's best remembered for is the nurse who became a doctor and it's just like that progression like those two storylines the way they echo each other and the way that carol's remembered for her relationship with doug but abby is remembered for being a nurse who became a doctor is like Mm. it just upsets me because you know nothing against those characters and nothing against a nurse who wants to become a doctor like sure great but there are plenty of people who actually wanted to be nurses, who like right. chose to be a nurse. And they do have that patient interaction and they do mm. matter as much as a doctor. And it's right. just sort of like threatening to have this idea that A, a nurse can just become a doctor if they, like, <laughs> you know, take a couple they more years enough. or whatever, you know? Like, yeah, if they want mm. enough. And and that that just being a nurse isn't a good enough end goal. It's like, of course it is. Right. There's this idea that professional success for a nurse is becoming a doctor. Right, exactly. We even even see it a bit in Doctor Who with Rory and I love Rory and it is so rare to see a male nurse in media but even in Amy's Choice that sort of wish fulfillment universe he's a doctor and granted he's a gerontologist which is like one of the hardest forms of medicine around and one of the ones that requires the most care but you know a nurse is not a failed doctor. No it's a completely separate job they they yeah. have they they work together as a team to take care of people like you can't if there were only doctors a lot of stuff wouldn't get done because the exactly. doctors don't even know how to do that because it's not right. their job they it's like the, the things that the nurse do are real skills they have real significance and right. it's it's mind-boggling and this you know we were saying that you could replace the doctors with the holograms or with a droid and it would be harder to replace the nurse yeah i think i know deep space nine had a like a rotating cast of bajoran nurses and that's the other thing you know the bajorans aren't doctors they're nurses but we rarely see nurses as characters save for Ogawa and Chapel and, and as you said both of their characterizations are much more about their personal lives yeah and their nursing yeah and 
it's just frustrating. I would like to see more. What I would actually like, I was thinking in the wake of the Strange New Worlds announcement, which we will discuss in detail at a future time, but what I would be doing if I was in charge of Star Trek, still waiting for that phone call, I would be looking at like about two short series a year three to six episodes just doing a deep dive into an aspect of the star trek universe and one of them would be like star trek posture starring gates mcfadden as the captain <laughs> of a medical ship and basically doing a medical drama in space that would be great i knew they would, you would they love would, the idea they would like go to planets that were having an outbreak and they would have to take care of them and it would just be amazing yeah because I watched for this, as, as as research for this episode, I watched The Child and I watched Ethics. So two Next Generation episodes and both involved the Enterprise dealing with a medical emergency outside of itself. You know, there's a spaceship crash and uh, uh, a plague mm -hmm. and it would be cool to see those stories stretched out over several episodes. I and I don't that. think... I don't think this concept would sustain a full 13 episode series, but I think three to six episodes and the sort of thing where you can reuse a lot of sets for the next one. And yeah, again, CBS, why do you not have me on speed dial? <laughs> My lack of experience is no impediment whatsoever. <laughs> we would definitely give the nurses their due. We would. And I think it would be really cool to see you know, are there doctors who specialize in a particular race or a particular type of race? And what if it's the 2390s and you're a Romulan and you're serving on a Starfleet medical ship? You know, how does Beverly adjust from being a chief medical officer to a captain? And in ethics, it's almost a throwaway line, but it's really kind of incredible to me that they have this conversation about how, you know, like, oh, well, I called the Klingons to see, you know, get their opinions mm. since Worf is a Klingon. And they were like, well, we would let him die. <laughs> and it's just, it's yeah. like, wow, okay. <laughs> cool medicine there, Klingons. <laughs> <laughs> like, yikes. Yeah. Uh, my favorite fact about ethics was that one wheelchair-using writer was so incensed by this depiction of Klingon ableism that he wrote the Deep Space Nine episode Melora because he wanted to depict a character whose use of a wheelchair uh, wasn't something to be pitied. Right, because it also happens with Captain Pike. Right, right. And I think what this guy was saying was really interesting, that it is... A reasonable point of world building and detail for the Klingon culture but at the same time this attitude that the severely disabled deserve to die is present among humans and so it's not nice to see it right and we talked fiction last week about how the Romulan was like oh well you know yeah you, you're yeah. blind so we would kill you too and it's just sort of like okay I understand that they're trying to make a line between the humans who are good and believe in medicine or something, I guess, and then these other races, but it's like, if these races are supposed to be our equals and they're, and they're, we're, we have a treaty with them and we're like, they're the same on yeah. par with us and that's their attitude, it's a little, it's like, okay. Maybe we yeah. need to 
it's another one of those things where like Star Trek, you need to explore that a little bit more. Right. It's an interesting and complicated issue, but you need to do more. And I think it's touched on when in Star Trek six in the, the wonderful dinner party scene where I think it's Chekhov who asks about human rights violations in the Klingon Empire. And a Zetbird deflects it by pointing out that the very term human rights is racist, which it is in this context. And I love her for that. But it's the question is never answered. Mm. Uh Ethics was a really interesting episode for me to watch as an adult because uh, this is embarrassing to admit, but before she retired, my mother was a professional pro-life lobbyist. Oh, okay. But this whole end-of-life assisted suicide thing was, you know, really got her fired up. So it was quite interesting to come back and watch it as an adult and go, okay, yes, this is not really an episode, air quotes, about assisted suicide. It's more like the clash between culturally appropriate medicine Mm. versus not because i think this is one of the the criticisms someone had on twitter of beverly that she is very paternalistic in her approach to patients Mm -hmm. from other cultures and it often wolf often bears the brunt of it like that terrible episode where she's pressuring him into donate donating blood to a romulan yes And, and he very straight up doesn't consent which is his right and so ethics was a really, I really enjoyed watching it actually, uh, partially because like Dr. Toby Russell is a woman and you so rarely see women as um, unrepentantly amoral scientists in Star Trek. Mm. Also, the actress bears an uncanny resemblance to Hillary Clinton in that era and I just found that <laughs> slightly totally funny. She totally does. Yeah, no I, one talks about that time Hillary Clinton was in Star Trek. I like I spent the entire episode going, "Why do I know you? Like, where, where yeah. do I know you from?" But you're right. That's that's absolutely true. She was. Very I went Hillary so Clinton-esque. far as to like look up the actress's IMDb to see what else she'd been in, and I couldn't place her after that. Yeah. And then she just hit the right angle, and the way her hair sat and everything, I was like, "Oh, that's the first lady." Yeah, I get. I, I like it. And I kind of like, yeah. she was totally a Hillary Clinton type character too. Right, so right. I'm into this. It works. Particularly that, that very 90s idea of her as this terrible woman who puts her profession above humanity. And we can talk about whether or not that's fair to Clinton, but I think it makes for a really interesting character and a really interesting foil for Beverly. And yeah, we rarely see that type as a mm. as a woman in Star Trek. Yeah, and I mean, so I wrote in our notes here that this the story that's told in Ethics is similar to the one that's told in Nothing Human in yes. Voyager. And what's interesting about it is that the character that she is an analog for in Nothing Human is like a genocidal maniac <laughs> Nazi doctor. <laughs> like, that's what he is. So it's really kind of terrible to say <laughs> those are the same because they're not. Like she is not a Nazi. She is she is not, you know, prioritizing medicine over people as a whole. Like it's there are there are layers to her. <laughs> She's not doing it on an industrial scale. But at the same time, she has looked at this severely disabled and deeply depressed man and gone, yes, that is the guy, the perfect <laughs> target for my unethical experiment. For 
my for my experimental yeah spine it's, replicator it's, uh, it's interesting yeah and then i also mentioned miri I don't know if you've seen Miri lately. I have not seen Miri for quite a few years. <laughs> it's a bad episode. I remember I don't it being a bit creepy. You, I don't <laughs> don't watch it on purpose. But... Is that the episode where like a, a teenage girl falls in love with Kirk? Yes, <laughs> and he yeah. handles it about as well as you could in the nineteen sixties. <laughs> it's, it's it's bad on on every level, but. It's, cool. Yeah, so it's an episode where there's a disease that only attacks adults. And so Miri, toward the end of the episode, starts showing symptoms of this disease because she's, like, gone through puberty. So it's mm. kind of terrifying that some a, a girl who has not yet gone through puberty is flirting with Captain Kirk. <laughs> but... It was the 60s! <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, and, you know, and everything about Rhea, it's a bad episode. It's a very bad episode. But the mm. idea is that there's this disease and McCoy is trying to come up with a cure and vaccine. Mm. And a very, I mean, this happens a lot in Star Trek. Like this whole, we are going to, we're going to come up with this cure and this vaccine for this disease. And it's going to happen in this 45 minute episode. And it's going to be great. Yes. And it's going to work by the end. That is not how that works. Even even with like time jumps, like in the quickening, where it's a month, it's still like no. That still <laughs> it takes over a year for this to actually happen. But that's fine. And we have all become experts in like the timeline of vaccine development, right? McCoy has successfully like comes up with his his uh, his you know, hypospray of magic that is going to fix it. And he injects it in himself because that's what you do when you're McCoy. And so I just, it's like he refuses to inject it in anyone else because it's untested because he has some semblance of, you know, understanding of reality and knows mm, that it couldn't possibly mm. actually be the cure. But... Uh, but he he you know, injects it himself, and so I, I I like to look at these three episodes and sort of these they bring up these questions of of medical ethics and how mm. how you address and and the idea of experimentation on willing or non willing participants. It's it's interesting, like as a as a, a little like these are the different ways that we look at it and it's interesting that in all three cases they end up doing it. Because well, they decide I feel like, that the risk is worth it. I feel like going, Oh, we found a potential cure but we're not going to test it because that would be really dangerous. It just makes for a very unsatisfying story. And I don't think anyone except possibly you or me would be entertained by the Federation Ethics Board. And this is the paper I wrote to, to substantiate my research. And here, is my, here are my test subjects. I just, you're right. I would be interested in that. Mm. I would be more interested in that than in an argument between Beverly and I forget her name. Toby Russell. Toby Russell, like, in the hallway of the Enterprise, 
<laughs> you know, for like back and forth for three lines, and then Beverly's like, "You're fired." Like it's that's it's interesting for the characters, mm. but I there's a better story. Somewhere. Right, it like there's more to that. So I want to see. I want to see more of it, and I, I and of course, I hate. Like, sorry to Worf, but I hate the ending where Worf dies but doesn't die. That is... Um, I like it better now that we know just how stupidly redundant Klingon systems are thanks to Discovery and showing us more of them. Uh, but I do have to wonder when Klingon medicine regressed from, hey, we can turn this guy into a human in the 23rd century to just let him die. Yeah. We don't want him. That's the other thing. It's like Klingon physiology and Klingon medicine does not make sense together. It, it does not make sense. Like how? Right. Like how their bodies have... are so sophisticated that right. they should have much more sophisticated medicine to deal with them. And and they have and, and, less. They have like more yeah. primitive medicine. It's very strange. And they don't. And this is something that. This is another thing that's like, I really wish that in all of the many, many Klingon episodes, there are so many Klingon episodes, I wish that any of them dealt with these questions of Klingons who are not warriors, Klingons who are scientists and want to be Mm. scientists, Klingons who are engineers and want to be engineers, and, and how they are looked down upon in their society. It's like, it's so strange. Klingon society is so strange the way that it has been presented in this idea that only a warrior, only a soldier has mm. value. When well, I think we sort of see that now where, you know, people like grocery workers and delivery drivers and nurses and teachers are just completely devalued until suddenly they're essential. And, you know, people who have spent their lives stocking up on guns or whatever to protect their families can't cope with protecting their families by staying in and wearing a mask. So I, I can sort of see that, but there's also an episode of Enterprise, which I think touches on it. And I'm blanking on the title, but it's the second season episode where Archer and someone or other are put on trial and it's all a big knockoff of the uh, trial scene in Star Trek Six, right, but JG yes. Hertzler plays the Klingon lawyer, yes. and he has this speech about how the Klingon Empire is in decline because they have overvalued their warriors, and one day this is going to come back to bite them. And I think two hundred years later, that is still still the problem that they're facing. It's definitely the problem. Mm. And you know, there's great tie-in novels about Klingons who are not warriors that I love yes. and I wish that they I wish that was represented because I I don't the Klingons that I'm interested in are the ones who who poke at Klingon culture and say why is this like this yeah which I think is the case with any story and maybe Strange New Worlds will give us a bit of that maybe I'm trying to be optimistic because my initial reaction to its announcement was so negative but we can talk about that next time Uh, You have a list of counsellors here. I like to remind everyone that counsellors are part of the medical system. They are. And we have 
two psychiatrists in Dr. Elizabeth Dana and Admiral Katrina Cornwell and two psychologists in Troy and Esri. What do you think happened to psychiatry after the 23rd century? (laughs) That's a good question. I guess, I mean, it might be as simple as saying it's sort of like, as you said with the doctors, how as society changed, so did Star Trek. Mm. Because I would say that certainly in this day and age, the people that you go to therapy tend not to be the people who give you the medication that you have. Yeah, the psychiatrists dispense and the psychologists counsel. Exactly. So I think that it's it used to be it was sort of the it was the psychiatrist and mm. it was very clinical and it's become much more about therapy and talk therapy and cognitive like all of this stuff mm. like they cognitive behavioral it's become more than just fixing your biochemistry Right. And I think that this that shift is this is the same. I suspect there's also a reluctance to get into too much detail with the nitty-gritty of futuristic psychopharmaceuticals. Yeah. Because for one thing, if someone's problem can be fixed by manually adjusting their brain chemistry, that's a very short yeah. story. But then there's things like Lorca's trauma or Lorca's so-called PTSD should have been detectable. Like, it would be detectable in an MRI now. Absolutely. Well, this is super interesting to me, as Mm. you might suggest. Yes, yes. I believe you literally did a thesis (laughs) on it. I did. So it's interesting to me as a student, as an academic, and it's also Mm. interesting to me as a person, like on a personal level, as someone who was sort of raised to be like my family wasn't really into therapy I should say my father wasn't very Mm. into therapy he thought that that was a (laughs) not a thing and I really really needed therapy and so did he um and I didn't get any until I became an adult and could get it for myself and yes and then I you know had a whole like decade-long awakening or whatever or like I worked I worked really hard to become comfortable with my mental stability to figure out how to live in my brain you know Mm. for the rest of my life because I can't change my brain yes medication stabilizes medication can address issues that are actually chemical which I very very prevalent and which anybody who has any kind of trauma it's a part of it Mm. because trauma changes your brain like that's what happens and so the medication adjusts that but the medication doesn't help you address the trauma itself right the way what happens to you you need it's not a band-aid but you need to learn new ways of thinking as well so i like that Troy and Esri are talk therapists. I think that Mm. that is hugely important and vital. And we need as many representations of that as we can get in any media. Not just Star Trek, not just (laughs) sci-fi. Anything. Mm. All of it. I... Before all conventions were cancelled this year, I was shopping around a panel 
that I entitled Saving the World Isn't Therapy. <laughs> and the idea was that if you look at, I was focusing on young adults because mm. like, you know, Harry Potter or Hunger Games, like look at them and they say, these are 17 year old people who are right, expected right. to to save everything. Even even Star Wars, like they're all 19. You know, it's, it's just Right, I'm crazy. watching the Clone Wars and I'm going, Ahsoka <laughs> is 14 years old. She should not be doing this. <laughs> like what is going on so and and the and anime oh my gosh like they're yeah. all they're all 13 through 17 years old in in all and, of these things and they are expected to be acting as superheroes and even adults who act as superheroes desperately mm. in therapy that's like what iron right. Man 3 is all about which is great i love that they're starting to realize that these things are important. But I think that in, it's definitely true in Starfleet. Like, you need mm. a, a counselor. And that's why I love the fact that Elizabeth Daner exists. Because at least it's saying, like, in the pilot of this series, yeah. we are saying we need someone who cares about our mental health. Because going out into explore strange new worlds where no man has gone before, like, that is you need someone to help you deal with what you find. Right. And it makes sense that it would be a psychiatrist at this stage because they can sort of do the empirical stuff and set up a baseline and build the map on which the, the psychologists can travel. I love that. I love that, that she mm. exists. And I love, you know, I've said many times that Esri is the character who I sat up and said, oh, like, I want to be her. <laughs> and I love that she is a counselor. I get annoyed with people who say she only became interesting when she started caring about command. Because no, much like the nurses, no. it's like counseling is vital and important and needed. Like, yes. It's great that Counselor Troy becomes a commander and takes the test and, and does all of that and deals with it and proves that she can do it. But she didn't need to. She, she was still no. super important and necessary to the show and to the ship before she did that. Right. And I was going to, I was also going to say, uh, with, with the echo of the nurses thing, I love that Beverly becomes a captain in all good things, but that is not what she has to do to be successful in her career. And you don't have to go to command and with Esri and Kat, it's not that they went to command instead of mental health. It's that they brought their mental health skills into command. Exactly. And that is, like, they would be so good at it. Of course, right. they, you know, it's like, of course you went into command because you had the skills. You had so much better skills than someone like, oh, let's talk about Archer. <laughs> My favorite trash captain has none of those interpersonal skills. He's super charming, but he is not good with people. <laughs> and, no. And so, like, the idea that he would be valued over a Cornwell is just ridiculous to me. One of the things that made me sit up and take notice of Cornwell in Choose Your Pain is the way she is speaking about Starfleet morale and the 
the needs of the fleet, pe the people within the fleet, and also about Michael and how she draws the distinction between Michael being scapegoated for the war and Michael being actually responsible for it. Mm -hmm. And that clearly comes from her background in psychiatry and mental health care. And it, it really sets her apart from all the other admirals right. we've ever seen. Right. It's amazing and I love it. So, yeah. Yeah, Kat, I mean, spoilers. I just, we love Cat a I, lot. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, I, I love, I love every counselor. I love Troy. I love Ezri. I love Cat. I even love Elizabeth Daner. And I get upset that her only episode is again all about a man that she happened to fall in love mm. with, <laughs> and it destroyed her Maybe life. Maybe <laughs> she can be a regular in Strange New Worlds. I it seems like a good role for Anatole. Oh my gosh, I would love. I would love, I was really mad when Karen Marcus ended up in Into Darkness instead of Elizabeth Daner because she had the haircut and so everyone yes. was saying that she was going to be Elizabeth Daner and I was like, oh my god, that's oh, all I want is for Elizabeth Daner to be a big thing. There was a rumour going around before Into Darkness came out that the whole Khan thing was a fake out and that Benedict Cumberbatch was actually playing Gary, Gary Mitchell. Mitchell. right. And I really liked the idea that Kirk's you know, all-American best friend was now this weedy Englishman. <laughs> and I, I really, I, I don't like Into Darkness and I really wish we'd gotten that movie instead. Once again, I like the Star Trek in my head better than Yeah. Alice than Eve would have been a great Elizabeth Daner. Right. And, and I like, right. honestly, I like her Carol Marcus, but it would have been so much more interesting if it was Gary Mitchell and Elizabeth Daner. Then right, because if, if nothing God. else, Khan is just done to death. Tired and I don't care. Hmm. Uh, do we want to talk about medtech? That's the final point on our list that we haven't covered. I just think it's amazing that Star Trek has really, like, there are biobeds. There are people mm. who are working on tricorders. There are people who are working on hypersprays. There are all, all of these things... They are trying to create. And, you it's know, amazing. That's yeah. true across all of Star Trek, but the medical technology that, that they, they are... I have a friend who uh, is literally working on a project that is basically a biobit. Like, he is trying to make biobits. That's amazing. It's incredible to me. Like, can you imagine how helpful it would be to have a bio bed right now <laughs> to have someone where you lie down and it takes your temperature and it tells you your vitals without hooking anything up and it says you know these are the four diseases that are probable you know it's it would be mm. so incredible to have even a tenth of that technology and so the fact that people are inspired by star trek to try to create it gates mcfadden has talked about how she is kept in the loop about medical tricorders like they people just send her emails like you know here's the the quarterly report on our research in the medical <laughs> tricorder and she's like i don't understand any of this but it's amazing that you are doing it and that they like it's inspiring that they've been inspired by the work that i've done you know it's like incredible so i love that and i just as much as I have been saying that I worry that technology is encroaching on, on mm. you know, human interaction in medicine, 
I think that if used instead of as a replacement, but as something to make yes. doctors better at their job, to make it easier to be a mm. doctor, easier to have the human interactions, like, you know, we should, we should support that in every way. Absolutely. I went to my local hospital a month or so ago to drop off some masks we had accidentally stockpiled after the bushfires. And they took like they just waved a thing and took my temperature from half a me, you know, centimeters away, mm-hmm. and it was amazing. I was like, "Oh, this is so futuristic!" <laughs> it's, and it's... then you know, you apply the hand sanitizer and you mask up, and yeah. Anyway, we've gone very far off topic, and probably I'm about to cut all of this COVID stuff because it'll probably bring people down a bit. But <laughs> well... I signed up for a Star Trek podcast. About medicine in Star Trek. Why are they talking about a terrible disease? Because, like, this is what our life is right now, and I think it's valid. That's just my opinion. I think it is too. I will say that I watched Critical Care for this episode. Oh, yes! And that's a and that's an episode, and this is true of all my, you know, I said that I, I love watching medical dramas, right? Mm. So ER is, like, old now, okay? Yes. And yet, in the first season, they had storylines mm. that dealt with how terrible med- like healthcare insurance is and how awful the idea of, mm. you know, some people getting better healthcare because they can afford it is. And that's yeah. it's true in every, in every medical drama. And it's usually in the first season. Like these are things that, if you're writing a medical drama, if you're writing about anything, it's that the has cliche to do with, you need to get out of the way. Yeah, you like you have to acknowledge the fact that our healthcare system is horrible, and mm. critical care is literally about deciding this person is more useful to society, and so therefore they will get better care. Mm. And and the thing is. It seems like a very uncontroversial thing to say, but then you have the current state of American yeah, politics exactly. with regards to public health care. And the thing is that it's literally happening right now. Like there are plenty of mm. people who are publishing their personal stories about I'm a doctor in Minnesota and I'm dealing with COVID patients and we are deciding which ones get the yeah. ICU beds and which ones don't based on, you know, who they are, what they can afford, where they are in their life. And it's horrible to think that, that, but it's also like, I feel for these people who are in the hospital who have to make those decisions because they don't have enough space because yeah. no one cared to, to like fix it, you know, before the fact. Yeah, or that hospital wasn't making a profit, so that's closed down, and so all the patients in this town have to go right. to this other hospital further away oh that's overwhelmed because suddenly it's dealing with two populations instead of one. And also there's the 36 million people or whatever who have um, who filed for unemployment, which means that they don't yes. have a job, which means they don't have health care. Like, right. it, is, it is the worst possible scenario for so many people and no it's terrible i want to i want to be like the you know i'm not 
the EMH, but I could be the little guy who's in the ward who's trying, who's doing his best with mm. no equipment and no medication and and barely minimum training to try to do, you know, the best you can do. Mm. And it's just, it's just like, ooh, that episode was really hard to watch in the current environment. It was hard to watch, you know, back in 1998 or whatever, <laughs> and it was <laughs> super hard to watch today. It's not as if anything's gotten better. No, it's gotten much worse, <laughs> and it's upsetting. Yeah. It's upsetting. And the fact that, like, it's still controversial to say that healthcare is right. Yeah, yeah. And that's controversial here, too. We have a really good public health care system, but our government thinks we would be much better off with an American-style one. I mean, remember earlier in this conversation, I said that I didn't get mental health care until I was an adult mm. and could ask for it. I yeah. also was no longer on my father's insurance and right. I was on public insurance mm. at that point because I didn't have a job and I didn't have and like and I got it and it covered everything like yeah that one moment in time and I don't think it's true of like I think that the Connecticut Husky plan has changed since I was on it and the fact that I was like in this golden age of healthcare for two <laughs> years or whatever. The one time that I desperately needed it. It's like, this is why I want to be, you know, I want to be Esri and I want to be a counselor and I want to help people is because I know that it's so hard to get the help you need. And it is, it is here too. It is actually harder to access mental health care in Australia than America, which is not usually the way we expect it to go. Anyway. Yeah, so sorry to get like super political, but <laughs> like healthcare isn't right. It should be free. <laughs> People are terrible. <laughs> and especially right now in the middle of a pandemic, you should just mm. get to be taken care of. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Star Trek is optimistic, which is the sort of thing that I sort of attitude that I usually rant about, but I'll let it stand for now. Yeah, the, it's forty-five minutes, and we've cured a in, disease. In in critical care, you know, it ends with the terrible jerk doctor and the overworked, under uh, under trained doctor, like working together to take down the administrator. And it's like, well, that wouldn't oh. happen, but it's a nice story. But of course, like at the end of the episode, Voyager leaves, Doctor leaves, you know. Yeah. Like, what happens on that planet? Probably those three people are like lose their job, and then everything is the status quo, and it's horrible. Like, <laughs> I wish, I wish I was optimistic. <laughs> but yeah. um, I'm an idealist. I'm not optimistic. There's a very big difference. There's a big difference between that, idealism and optimism. That is the that is the rant that I've been trying to articulate. <laughs> But I say, I say I'm a Slytherin, which is an idealist. I am not an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening to AntimatterPod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.tumblr.com, including links to our social media and credits for our theme music. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at @antimatterpod. Sometimes we post cat pictures and questions for our audience. 
If you like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And join us in two weeks when we'll be discussing the newly announced Strange New Worlds. Woo! Is it? Is it really? <laughs> Look, number one and Spock are going to make out. <laughs> it's going to happen. And if they're going for an episodic old series sort of vibe, then sooner or later there'll be sex pollen. That's exactly. the rule. Exactly. There will be a reason. An episode where someone gets turned into a lizard. I... Real Star Trek. <laughs> Real Star Trek.